Okay, guys. Well, good morning again. All right. So I, I read this story by Bradley Nassif called Hummus and the Holy Spirit that I want to share with you this morning. Bradley Nassif, a follower of Christ of Lebanese descent, tells the story of his grandmother who often showed her love by cooking. Nassif writes, when I was a boy, she would spend hours in the kitchen kneading dough, grinding lamb, boiling cabbage, mixing spices, rolling grape leaves, making baklava, and baking bread. The foods were elaborately prepared with time-tested techniques. Many dishes went back centuries. Some of the days of Jesus. Salads, desserts, side dishes, and main courses offered the best of grandma's Mediterranean gems. I especially loved her hummus, a, chick, a chickpea dip now popular in America. Grandma died many years ago, and for years I longed for her hummus. But to my dismay, I failed as I mixed the wrong ingredients and spices over and over again. What am I doing wrong, I asked. Why can't I make hummus as grandma did? What is the right blend of lemon, garlic, and olive oil? What's essential and what's not? Eventually, I discovered the balance. Now my hummus is to die for, at least according to my family. Similarly, Christians have a long tradition of enjoying a delicate combination of ingredients that compose a proper understanding of the Trinity. That beautifully balanced doctrine of the Trinity came in the fourth century after church leaders reflected on how God exists as a unity of three equal divine and equally eternal persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Three divine persons sharing one divine nature, the doctrine was eventually summarized in the Nicene Creed. And today, I want to look at the doctrine of the Trinity and try to gain a better understanding of it, including some arguments against it, defenses against those arguments, and God willing, some practical application to help us grow in faith. And first thing I want to point out is that the word Trinity is not actually found in the Bible. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. As mentioned before, this doctrine was established in the fourth century by church leaders. The Bible contains facts that clearly support this fundamental doctrine, which states that there is only one God in three persons who are distinct from each other, but united at the same time. One quick disclaimer, as most scholars have pointed out, understanding God cannot be done apart from what he has already revealed about himself. And so to gain an insight into this topic, we have to search the scriptures. We have to consult the Bible. And speaking of scriptures, does anybody know where the first baseball game was in the Bible? It was in the beginning. Eve stole first, Adam stole second. According to the doctrine of the Trinity, there's only one God, and God exists in three persons. And so what does the Bible say? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall 
teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This passage is known as the greatest commandment. Notice Moses says, Hear, O Israel. The Hebrew word for hear is Shema, which in addition to listening or hearing can also mean obey. And so essentially Moses is telling the Israelites to listen, to pay attention, to take heed, to take notice, and to lend an ear and obey the declaration that he's about to make. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, meaning the God of Israel, is the one true God. This statement essentially dismisses the concept of an additional God or gods. And these Israelites were told to listen to and obey this fact. According to verse 5, they were commanded to love the Lord with all of their hearts, with all of their souls, and with all of their strength. This means that these people are being commanded to love the one true God with everything that they are. So much so that they were to keep these words in their hearts, teach them to their children, and talk about them while sitting in their homes, while they were walking around, while they were going to sleep, and when they were waking up. Moses said that they should bind them as a sign on their hands and be as frontlets between their eyes. A frontlet is a decorative headband that would have scripture on it to let others know that they were righteous, not unlike the cool stickers we see on everybody's cars today. And finally, Moses told them to write these things down on their doorposts at their houses and the gates. And my primary argument, my primary argument is that we as Christians should do the exact same thing. And I know that some people might say, but we're Christians, not Jewish Israelites. Is the one true God of Israel the same for Christians? Notice in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Notice Jesus repeats the greatest commandment that Moses made. Who we are and how we feel and where we come from and what the movies tell us have no bearing on the fact that there is only one God. And he is the God of the Bible. The same and only one from before time and forevermore. And we are commanded by Jesus Christ to love him. First, just as the Israelites were commanded by Moses. There is only one God. And this overall understanding of one God is called monotheism. Monostheos, the belief in one God. Monos is Greek for one or single, and theos means God. Monostheos, one God, which is the Christian belief. There are a lot of other beliefs out there. Monolatry, worship of one God without necessarily excluding the belief that others may exist. Henotheism, worship centered on one God while recognizing the existence of others. Polytheism, worship of and belief in many gods. All three of these are somewhat related. Hinduism is one example as they typically worship one God but acknowledge that there are many others. 
Ancient Egypt was another example. They believed in many gods, but typically elevated the sitting pharaoh as the primary god. Ancient Greeks are another example, with Zeus being the big god and the lesser gods reporting to him, all of whom were worshipped. Some scholars even believe that those early Israelites started to fall into this category, which is why Moses had to square them away with the greatest commandment we talked about just a second ago. Another belief is called pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that God is everything and everything is God, essentially equating God and the universe. Pantheism is very similar to polytheism in that it believes in many gods, but it essentially understands uh, inanimate objects to be gods, things like rocks or trees, um, etc. Classic examples are those that worship Mother Nature, the sun, animals, etc. Speaking of Mother Nature, um, do you guys know why Mother Nature tripped the last day of summer? To make it fall. It's not, it's not real hard. It's not real hard to debunk some of these claims using the Bible. Uh, but it is important to point out that the Bible does mention many gods. But those are not divine beings. One article I read stated this. Describing something as a god does not mean you believe it to be a divine being. The vast majority of Old Testament scriptures which speak about gods are speaking of false gods. Those who claim to be gods, but are not. There are many who have claimed to be gods, just like the Egyptian pharaohs. There are many objects that people make into gods, things that they worship, possessions, money, and many others. And while there are so many things to consider, for time's sake, I want to read this really cool quote that I found um, called, Can Monotheism Be Proven? from gotquestions.org, which I think makes a lot of sense. Since God is a completely perfect being, there cannot be a second God, for they would have to differ in some way. And to differ from complete perfection is to be less than perfect and not be God. Perfect in Hebrew means to be complete of its kind. There is only one God. He is complete and he is perfect. Psalm 18.30 As for God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. Notice his way, not their way. I read about a family that was trapped in a forest fire. And so a helicopter team undertakes a rescue. One fireman flies the helicopter over the smoky blaze to coordinate the operation and see the big picture. A second fireman descends on a rope into the billowing smoke below to track down the family and stand with them. Once he locates the family, he he wraps the rope around them, attaching them to himself, and they are lifted up together from the blaze into safety. In this rescue operation, the first fireman looks like God the Father, who can see the whole field unclouded from above to sovereignly orchestrate the plan. The second fireman looks like God the Son, who descends into our world ablaze to find us, the human family, and identify with us most deeply in the the darkness of the grave. God the Spirit is like the rope who meditates the presence of the Father to Jesus. Even in his distance, 
and raises Jesus and the human family with him from sin, death, and the grave into the presence of the Father. Of course, like all analogies, this one falls short. The Spirit is a person, not a thing, like a rope. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate individuals, but the one God sharing a divine nature and essence as one being. Charles Spurgeon said, When thou sayest, Savior, remember there is a trinity in that word, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This Savior, being three persons under one name, thou canst not save by the Son without the Father, nor by the Father without the Son, nor by the Father and Son without the Spirit. Notice, the Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons, but one God, sharing a divine nature and essence as one being. Some of you may have seen the book illustration that Pastor Larry uses sometimes when sharing the gospel, which is you have one book, but it contains a width, a height, and a depth. All of them are required to complete the one book, and without them, you wouldn't have the book. And even though that illustration falls short too, it is a pretty good object lesson to think about. Pastor Larry also points out in his discipleship class that in this arrangement of the Godhead, the Father is said to be the first person, the Son. Jesus is the second person, and the Holy Spirit is the third person. However, he also points out those numbers don't mean anything at all. The Father being designated number one is not more important than the Son, and Jesus being the second person is not more important than the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equal in importance the other, or to the other members. I don't have time to get into depth on each of the three persons, but we're going to look at each one briefly. God the Father is called the first person of the Trinity, primarily because of the Trinitarian formula found in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Notice, the Father is named first. In addition, the Father is in the leadership position, similar to a dad being the head of a household. In John 6, 57, we read that it was the Father who sent Jesus into the world. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. It was the Father that raised Jesus from the dead, Acts 2.32. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And Jesus was obedient to the Father while on earth, John 5.19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And so it's clear to see that there is a hierarchy as it relates to the function, such as the Father being in the leadership role, but not as it relates to each being God. This term is called economic trinity, which essentially means household management, which includes the assignment of roles and jobs within a family, husband, wife, children, all equal in the eyes of God, but with different roles. John 6, 27 
Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Remember the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took five barley loaves and two small fish from a lad, gave thanks to the Father, and miraculously, everybody ate until they were filled, and the fragments, the, the, what was left, the crumbs, filled more baskets than what they started with. Well, later the people were looking for Jesus, probably because they wanted more food or more bread. But he said, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures for everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father set his seal on him. A seal is a personalized design used to produce an imprint in clay or wax, which is then attached usually to like a document um, and letters as a mark of ownership, authenticity, or authority. A seal might also refer to uh, what is given as a pledge or a guarantee to be used to keep something secure. You've probably seen the movies where some king pours hot wax on a letter and stamps it with his seal. This allows the reader to first know where it came from, but it also, if he gets the seal unbroken, the reader can have confidence that no one else has read the letter. Well, likewise, it was God the Father who validates Jesus' ministry. God the Son said that he would give everlasting life because God the Father set his seal on him. Some have said that the Father has declared him to be the Son of God with power. God the Father is the head of the household, and the other members submit to him as such. There's this book called The Meaning of Marriage, written by Timothy and Kathy Keller. And in it, Kathy gives an example of submission in a tough life choice. In the late 1980s, she says, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. And then he was offered to move to New York City to plan a new church. He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the entire family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right thing or the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. However, I replied, oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made the decision to come to New York and plant, planted uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The whole family, my sons included, considered to be one of the most truly manly things he ever did because he was quite scared, but he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with. But it is clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. It's not always easy to be the servant. 
the one who chooses submission for the greater good. But that's exactly what God has demonstrated to us in the Trinity. Notice, God the Son, or Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is in no way inferior to the Father. However, Jesus Christ voluntarily took on the role of the person who would become human. As stated before, Jesus lived in total submission to God the Father while he was human. And notice Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Jesus Christ, while being equal with God, made himself obedient to the Father to provide salvation to those who believe. His submission to God the Father is clearly seen in John 17, where Jesus prays to the Father for himself, for his disciples, and for all believers. Notice John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Notice he says that, he says that they, meaning the believers, may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Remember, God the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world for this specific task of saving people. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew understood this Jesus to be the fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, signifying that he is God in the flesh and has the power to forgive sins. Matthew 9.6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus has the power to do this while being in the submission to the Father. He is himself God incarnate, God in the flesh or God with us. Notice Romans 9.5. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to save sinners. He is no less God than the Father, just with a different role. Colossians 2.9, For in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the key that unlocks the door to eternity. There was this cool blurb in Christianity Today called, Looking unto Jesus, it said this, I looked on Jesus, and the dove of peace entered my heart. I looked at the dove of peace, and lo, off it went. It's all about Jesus. Notice 
Titus 2, 13, 14. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Remember this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's Jonathan Edwards. Jesus Christ is in fact God. Notice John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. What about the third person? What about the Holy Spirit? He likewise is not inferior to the Father or the Son. Notice John 14, 16, and 17. Jesus says this, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor, nor hears him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Again, you see that the father is the one who has the leadership position, but notice the helper will abide with you forever, forever. So clearly he's eternal, but also notice he is called the spirit of truth. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. John MacArthur said he is the spirit of truth and that he is the source of truth that communicates the truth to his own. Apart from him, men cannot know God's truth. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said in order to understand God, we have to understand what he has revealed about himself. We have to consult the Bible, which we've been doing a lot. But why is the Bible a reliable source? The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the truth. Have you ever heard the phrase, the Bible is inspired? Well, our Christian Bible had several human authors. However, they were each divinely influenced in that they actually wrote down God's words. Hence the Bible being referred to as the word of God. Notice 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy means disclosing of the will and purposes of God through inspired or spirit-filled human beings. And so this third person of the Godhead was responsible for influencing people to write down God's words. I mean, think about that for a minute. God the Father sent God the Spirit to reveal himself to people over hundreds of years. This Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, just like the Father, is an eternal member of the triune Godhead. Understand that this is true since the very beginning of time. Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Dr. Tony Evans, the founder of and senior pastor of um, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas, said, people from different backgrounds may not have a natural affinity, but when the word of God is treated right and the Holy Spirit is allowed to engage, it can bring together things, people, backgrounds, histories, races, colors, and cultures, and hold them together in a way that natural affinity may not be able to do. Think about it like this. The Holy Spirit brought together many different people to author the Bible, and yet it is perfect and without error. It's like a symphony, each piece important, distinct, and yet one masterpiece, as is the Holy Trinity, three persons, one God. And to be fair, this is a very difficult doctrine. It's a very tough doctrine to understand because we are limited in our finite minds to comprehend something that may go beyond our understanding. And so to, to help clarify, we're going to watch a really quick video called The Holy Trinity Explained in Three Minutes, which was made by using C.S. Lewis's explanation of the Trinity. So please check this out. In the Trinity, there is said to be three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each of the persons is fully God. Now stopping there, it would appear that Christians actually worship three gods. However, nowhere in the Bible or Christian tradition does the Trinitarian concept become a tritheism, meaning three gods. God is always declared as one, which turns this doctrine into quite a mind-bender. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are said to share one nature, but the Father is not the same person as the Son, who is not the same person as the Holy Spirit, who is not the same person as the Father. They are three distinct persons in one substance, essence, or nature. Chronicles of Narnia author C.S. Lewis suggests that humans shouldn't be able to fully grasp a being that is beyond our three-dimensional world and uses this following example. If you are using only one dimension, you can draw only a straight line. If you are using two, you could draw a figure, say a square, and a square is made up of four straight lines. Now a step further, if you have three dimensions, you can then build what we call a solid body, say a cube, a thing like a dice or a lump of sugar, and a cube is made up of six squares. He's making the point that a world of one dimension would be a straight line. In a two-dimensional world, you still get straight lines, but many lines make one figure. And in a three-dimensional world, you still get figures, but many figures make one solid body. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels, you still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. Now the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings. Just as, in two dimensions, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being. 
just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, Lewis admits we cannot fully conceive a being like that, just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube. But we can get a sort of faint notion of it, and when we do, we are then, for the first time in our lives, getting some positive idea, hmm. however faint, of something super personal, something more than a person. It is something we could never have guessed, and yet once we have been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it, because it fits in so well with all the things we know already. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most difficult idea in Christianity, and yet one of the most fundamental. It instructs Christians on who God is, how He is to be worshipped, and how God interacts with humanity. All right, seems simple enough, right? Well, it's not. <clears throat> Many people have a tendency to overemphasize the three persons or the oneness of God and ultimately create non-biblical teachings. Uh, three examples are modalism, um, Arianism, and um, tritheism. Modalism teaches that God becomes three different forms or modes from different purposes or four different purposes. Essentially, this false teaching is that the, the Father, Son, and Spirit do not exist at the same time, but rather they are manifestations that happen at different times depending on what is needed. God is Father when it's time to create laws or, or to just create anything. And, and then he becomes the Son when it's time to redeem. And, and then he becomes the Spirit when it's time for grace. One article I read stated that some Pentecostal denominations adopt a Jesus-only formula for baptism and, and thus oneness theology. They affirm both that their God is one and that Jesus is fully God, but they deny that there are three divine persons. The United Pentecostal Church is the largest oneness group in America. They officially denied the doctrine of the Trinity and said this, uh, in distinction to the doctrine of the Trinity, the UC, UPCI holds to the oneness view of God. It views the Trinitarian concept of God, that God eternally exists as three distinctive persons, as inadequate and a departure from the consistent and <clears throat> biblical revelation of God being one. Thus, God is manifested as Father in the creation and as Father of the Son in the Son for our redemption and as the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. This implies that the Son is not eternal, which is clearly not true. Remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, when Jesus is being questioned for, um, by some Jews, he, he makes the statement in verse 58, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, making his own claim as a deity. I am implies continuous existence, including before Abraham's birth, which was 18 centuries before Jesus's birth. Modalism was deemed as heretical by the early church, so it's wrong. And we're just going to go with that. Arianism teaches that Jesus Christ was the highest created being of God. Essentially, he was fully human, but he was not fully God. This is the official teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They essentially teach that Christ is not God, but one of God's first creatures known as the Archangel Michael. This has to be, this was also deemed heretical um, and a false teaching because the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Um, and in fact, the Bible states in John 10 30, I, meaning Jesus, and my Father are one. 
Jesus, the Son of God, is God incarnate, meaning God in the flesh. And just to be clear, the only way that the Jehovah's Witnesses can justify their teaching is because they have deliberately manipulated the Bible. They took God's word and they distorted it into a book that they call the New World Translation, which, in my opinion, is probably one of the most egregious acts of sin that can take place for humanity. Um, but we'll, I'll digress. Tritheism teaches three equal, independent, and autonomous beings, each of whom is divine. For example, Mormonism believes that the three persons of the Trinity are actually separate gods. The Father being an exalted man that became a god, Jesus being the firstborn child of that god, and the Holy Spirit yet another child of that god, and that the Son and the Spirit are not actually equal with God the Father. They are lesser gods, along with so many others, apparently, that rule other worlds. While Jesus and the Holy Spirit are gods of this particular world, which is why we've heard of them. This is also erroneous teaching. According to the Bible, notice 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One source said this, from the very beginning of the church, Christians have understood the mystery of the Trinity, even before they began using the term Trinity. For example, the first Christians knew the Son was the Creator. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, meaning Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Many times the three are mentioned together, such as 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God for our gospel did not come into um, word only, but as in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity, or the triune God, is three coexistent, co-eternal persons who are God. How does this knowledge help us at all in our lives? How can we apply any of this that will help us in a way to increase our faith? Well, first and foremost, we can give thanks to God the Father. Notice Colossians three fifteen through 17. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Remember, Jesus himself prayed to the Father, gave thanks to him for everything, and gave him all the glory of his ministry. Second, we can respond to God the Son by accepting his invitation of salvation. 
Notice that Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's plan of saving us starts with our confession of belief in Jesus Christ as God, the eternal one who forgives sins. And third, we can use the instructions given to us by the Holy Spirit in the inspired word of God. Notice 1 Corinthians 2, 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We can compare all things in our life to God's word and make the necessary adjustments when we're out of whack. I read this story called The Beautiful Mystery of the Trinity. The Beautiful Mystery of the Trinity, which said, here's the beautiful thing. You don't need to fully understand the Trinity to worship the Trinity, pray to the Trinity, and enter into a life of the Trinity. They tell me that deep within the core of the sun, the temperature is 27 million degrees. The pressure is 340 billion times what it is here on Earth. And in the sun's core, that insanely hot temperature and unthinkable pressure combined to create a nuclear reaction. In each reaction, four protons fuse together to create one alpha particle, which is 0.7% less massive than the four protons. The difference in mass is expelled as energy, and after one million years, through the process of convection, this energy from the core of the sun finally reaches the surface, where it is expelled as heat and light. Now that's all super interesting. But you know what? I didn't need to know all that in order to get a tan. And so the Trinity can be very, very difficult to understand. But here's the deal. There is only one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To him, we owe everything. And to him, we commit our souls eternally. So if you don't understand the Trinity, then understand this. The one true God that created everything in existence today loves you so much that he designed a very complex method to save you. Have you let him save you? If you haven't, then I encourage you to reach out to Pastor Larry or myself so we can share with you in greater detail just how much he loves you. Just how much this triune God loves you. And how through accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can spend eternity with this amazing, amazing triune God. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for all that we've learned today. Lord, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that such an amazing and awesome God has done so much to save us. You have done so much to make yourself known to us, Lord. It's my hope and prayer and desire, Lord, that we would, we would all leave this place today and just contemplate you, Lord. We would just think about you. We would think about how important you are to everything. Help us to prioritize you in our life. Help us to prioritize your son Jesus on this earth. Help us, Father, to do all we can to give you our glory. Help us to live for you. Thank you so much for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen.